You are listening to the official Sasta podcast brought to you by the godfather of SAS, Jason Lemkin at Jason LK on Twitter and me, Harry Stebbings of the 20 Minute VC at H Stebbings on Snapchat. Now for today's show, you might remember a couple of months ago, we had Mathilde Collin, founder and CEO of Front App on the show. And today I'm delighted to welcome Mathilde's new head of sales at Front, as of this month that is, and that's Kaylin Saar. Now I think Kaylin might just be the head of sales every SaaS startup founder is dreaming of. Having previously been the first sales hire at Dropbox, where he launched Dropbox's first B2B product. Prior to that, he was a director at Box, where he helped pioneer and operationalize the freemium land and expand sales model, which is now a core SaaS sales methodology. Now, if you enjoyed the episode with Kaylin today and want to hear more from him, then you must head over to frontapp.com and head to their blog, where you can find Mathilde's written interview with Kaylin. However, now for today's show, and I'm delighted to welcome the new head of sales at Front App. Kaylin Saw. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Kaylin, absolutely fantastic to have you on the official Sasta podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Harry, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Well, I'd like to get the show kicked off today by hearing a little bit about you and your journey into head of sales at Front. So what's your route into head of sales at Front? Yeah, yeah. So it's very interesting, actually. Um, during my time at both Box and Dropbox, you start to meet a lot of different people in the Valley. As you know, the, the circle is very small. So actually, one of the one of our the early investors in Front, uh, Andy McLaughlin, from Softac have uh, known each other for quite some time, and so uh, I was kind of rounding out my almost my sixth year at uh, Dropbox. He preemptively reached out and figured I might be thinking about my next move. Things led to things, and I got connected up with uh, Matilda over here, and me as someone who's a nerd when it comes to end user technology that's used in companies. Um, it was something where after I saw the demo and just generally met the her and the early team, I was really, really blown away by uh, the quality of the product they're working on and also generally what, they, what their obje- the, the mission objective of the company was. I thought it was very aligned with my passions and, and what I cared about. So it was a mutual fit from both sides. And uh, here I am. And, and you spoke about Matilda, there, and Matilda actually provided some question suggestions for today. And she, she stated, obviously, your past with Box, where you were in very early, and then Dropbox, where you were, again, an early employee. So, so And then now with Front, another early-stage employee situation. So is, is this a trend for you, and at what stage do you like to, to, to pivot out? Yeah, yeah. So um, it's it's kind of weird. Like, I think the big thing for me is like, I, I generally look at opportunities more. The first thing I, I look for, the very first opportunity is, you know, the, the strength of the team and also the, the ability for me to connect, connect with some with the early stage founder, right? So I think for me, I've been at part of both, you know, two hyper growth companies. Uh, with Box, I was with them from, you know, less than 20 through 125. And Dropbox, I was with them from about 17 to 1400 employees worldwide across 11 offices. And I think the big thing for me is I always like feeling like I have a tangible impact. Um, and I think that that is kind of proves true as you're kind of scaling up and growing and conquering your market, uh, especially as you, as you grow and raise more funding and all the, the, the traditional things that happen when you're, when you're building a hyper growth company and a successful company. But I think at some certain point, you kind of hit that tipping point where you start to lose, uh, your identity and you start to feel like you're not getting a chance to really roll up your sleeves anymore. And it's more about, executing versus laying the building blocks or doing foundational setting uh, activities. And so I think the big thing for me is I like to go back to early stage where 
Um, you're just trying to figure out product market fit and trying to figure out how you get your product in the hands of people, how to deal with rejection, how to have a good feedback loop and kind of help the product team iterate on building a great product. And I think that that you start, once you have more maturity in your business, it becomes less, less easy for you to kind of feel that visceral feeling whenever you're, you're, you're coming to work every day. And I have to ask that you mentioned the hyper growth of box and Dropbox. And so having seen the, the growth of those two immense engines in the, in the world, uh, what, what were the big takeaways from you in terms of their sales processes that were a key determinant to their success? Do you think? Yeah. Yeah. So I'd say that, um, at both companies, they were very different actually. Um, and it's very interesting because, you know, they are both competitors. And I think now more and more you're starting to see where their strong suit is. Obviously, Box focusing on the highest end of the market. And then with Dropbox kind of focusing on SMBs and kind of mid-sized companies and now starting to get into larger companies. I think the big learnings is for Box, uh, I probably distilled the list down to just, you know, really iterating fast and adapting your user and customer base, adapting your user and customer base um, as you mature. One of the lessons I saw at Box was, you know, we started with, we had a freemium model and we had a lot of knowledge workers who would sign up under their company domain. And our goal was to kind of engage them, understand how they heard about the product, um, and then understand how they're, how they're hoping to use the product based on you know, existing uh, technology that IT is providing, was it suboptimal or, you know, kind of the likes. Gathering a lot of information and slowly improving your product experience based on that. And with the kind of the long-term goal in mind of building a product that's going to be uh, able to support many of those folks allows you to kind of scale up market very quickly. I think another learning was just generally be a fly on the wall when you have great leadership and great kind of management and senior management talent. Uh, so what I found, I was fortunate enough to get to work with some very amazing people, including Aaron Levy, and kind of get his undivided attention um, on kind of key kind of areas when we were handle when we were tackling our go-to market. The the biggest learning for me was getting a chance to just really, really watch what he did and how he thought about the space and you know his ideas about thought leadership when it came to, you know, in the early days just replacing an FTP or replacing kind of antiquated behaviors that should be disrupted um, all the way through kind of who you see today, which is, you know, someone who's kind of a visionary in the space and has great ideas about and, and has taken his company not only from small company living, being in an apart, uh, apartment office all the way through, you know, now a public company that's doing well, uh, but in terms of just also making sure that you're trying to kind of mimic, you know, the thought leadership and ideas and trying to also model yourself after people who you think are better than yourself. Um, and then finally, thinking outside the box. So just finding, finding ways to scale revenue, scale growth, uh, scale the team um, that are not your, your, your typically seen as an orthodox way of doing things. For example, you know, working with engineering to find ways to better engage with your prospects, um, especially when you have you know, a consumer model where, you know, they're using on a day-to-day basis for personal use, finding ways to identify those users who might be potential great upsell opportunities and try to find a way to engage with them in a very automated fashion. And then flipping over to Dropbox, uh, I'd say probably the same thing, really just finding ways to optimize via automation. The big learning I learned for, that I got out of my Dropbox experience was also uh, trying to find ways to, and, and to evaluate and hire the best talent. Um, obviously, here in the Valley, uh, the best talent is very scarce. And, you know, uh, you have many, many companies vying for the, uh, the services of some of the best engineers, salespeople, uh, marketing folks, etc. So the big thing is you have to build this halo effect, right? You have to start to build good momentum around your business. You have to connect them with other like-minded people, both people who are their peer group that they can learn from and also hire great leaders who can help 
teach them and help them level up and make sure that they understand that like this is where they're going to be able to build a great career, but also have a great time doing it. And then also making sure you're building scalable processes to evaluate the, the, uh, evaluate the talent after hiring. So incorporating things in the hiring process, like defi- building a scorecard for defining which attributes are most important based on the role you're in and developing interesting exercises or mock calls or presentations and things that you find important and are very valuable in your current sales process and being able to define which of those attributes are most important and giving every single candidate a score a score at the end of the interview process so and then measuring that 12 months later at their at their 360 review seeing how many of those things that you identified as weaknesses or strengths came up 12 months later in their performance. But, but then I, I, I want to touch then on, you said about working with engineering. And so how do you as the head of sales really like to integrate the, the sales process with the engineering team and really help develop that feedback loop for the product? Yeah, yeah. So um, here at Front, uh, it's great because we're a really, really small team. And we're in a unique position where engineering works very, very closely with sales. Um, And the reason being is that, you know, we have a... Uh, a great product where sales is on the front lines engaging with a lot of uh, prospects of all sizes and uh, shapes and forms. And a lot of the time, uh, engineering is very, very involved in bug, tra- bug tracking right now. Like at our current st- size, uh, we've actually been able to crowdsource the support process. So each one of us has spent an hour doing uh, hour plus doing support every single week. Um, and that allows us to be able to understand some of the technical challenges that we face. And as a company with 17 employees and seven engineers, um, oftentimes they're very, very involved in resolving and troubleshooting a lot of problems, and so are we. And so it allows us to have a very, very good understanding of each other and some of the things that we have to go through versus them. Separately, uh, because we are building a purely a B2B business, we have to engage with our prospects and kind of understand, you know, especially at the larger, higher end of the market, larger prospects and companies, what kind of challenge are they dealing with when it comes to core use cases that we see? There's things like support or general email collaboration or you know, companies who want to be kind of more forward thinking about how they approach communication in their company. As people on the sales side, we have to be directly in contact with these folks every single day. And as we talk to larger companies, we're hearing a lot of feedback around, especially as they deploy and use, uh, set up a proof of concept. We hear about the good and bad, right? The things that we do very, very well and the things that we do poorly. And a lot of these things uh, sometimes bubble down to feature gaps in the product experience or things around policy or tracking, et cetera, reporting. Um, and so as a sales team, we need to make sure that we have a type feedback, feedback loop directly with engineering so we continue to build a great product based on what we're hearing from the market. And I'm really intrigued. One of the things you mentioned about learnings from Dropbox was in terms of selling the freemium model. And I'm intrigued to hear how, how the, the actual sales processes differs when selling a freemium product compared to maybe a much more B2B product like Front. How does that differ? Yeah, so um, I think the I think the interesting thing is the way I think about freemium is the free product is essentially your marketing vehicle, right? Um, if you have a freemium business model, um, I think you could make it work, uh, especially if you're selling to SMBs because the the cost per lead theoretically could be lower than what, it, what you'd pay to or do, doing paid acquisition or SEM. So this starts to get the product immediately in their hands and people start to use it. I think my learning from both. My past two companies where we did employ a, a freemium model to acquire users and eventually customers um, is that you need to make sure you have strong limits in the product, but don't water down the product experience to the point that you know, it leads to less stickiness in the overall experience. 
Uh, for example, you know, uh, in my early time at Box, you know, we used to give our free users every single feature. And the goal was if they are collaborating with someone on a paid account or even a business account, they would have access to all the premium features. Indirectly, what was happening is that they were having a great product experience, but did not see the value of actually ever having an upgrade path to bringing the rest of their team on. Um, and generally, the users you'll find will find ways around actually ever having to pay if they, uh, if they don't have to. Um, so the goal is you need to know who your target audience is and who is your sales team essentially selling to, looking at average deal sizes, average deployment sizes, things like this, like this nature, and look at that relative to who are you offering the product for free for and making sure you, know, you give them enough kind of functionality capability to still have a great product and for them to continue to say great things about your business and essentially be your kind of your evangelist, but also ensure that you know, you're not cannibalizing yourself on the lower end of the market and the higher end of the market based on the kind of artificial limitations you set forth in the product. And another element you said about also from your learnings was the evaluation and the hiring of, of talent. Uh, so I want to also discuss your hiring processes and what you look for in sales reps as, as a head of sales and then your sourcing strategies to ensure that they sign with you over the plethora of other startups and Titan tech companies that you've worked with. So how do you approach that? element of the business. Yeah, yeah. So um, here at Front, obviously, we are we have less resources given that we're a 70-person company and uh, we don't have an internal recruiter. Um, I've had the great fortune of getting to spend almost two years in a full-time recruiting role where um, I was recruit, uh, owning everything from recruiting the sales uh, folks from the sales team, as well as roles like biz ops and marketing and corp dev and a bunch of other kind of non-technical roles, as well as technical roles. And so what I found through this experience is um, you need to kind of optimize in a couple different dimensions. The first one is candidate experience. If you can provide a very curated, very personal candidate experience to every single candidate you talk to, and that's all across, that runs the gamut of everything on the spectrum, everything from the first outreach where maybe you give them a call on the phone versus sending them an email, giving them that personal touch and love all the way through, you know, sending them personalized offer packages after that they, after they accept it, where everyone signed uh, the card and giving them a swag pack and all these things. Having that personal touch actually really adds an element, demonstrates that you care about the candidate. Secondly, making sure that you have a very compelling set of, of employment props here. So as a small 17-person company, it's very attractive to be part of something that's very small where you kind of get to come in, set the foundation, and you have the potential to accelerate your career versus going to a much larger company where things are more rigid and defined. Here at Front, you can actually get your hands dirty in a number of different things. You get to touch all different parts of the business. You get you know direct access to the founders where you're working directly with them every single day, like myself and everyone else here. Um, and you get to also get a chance to really be involved in kind of anything you might be passionate about, right? And there's so much work to be done in a startup of this size that if you um, are a candidate, that can be a very, very compelling value prop for the right candidate. But as someone who has to evaluate talent, you have to be very, very rigorous about asking the right questions, right? So understanding where are they coming from? What is their current uh, employment situation? What, what are they looking for in their next job? If they're a passive candidate, really, really getting them excited about the opportunity and getting excited about the mission of the company and, uh, and the potential overall success of the company and you know, just kind of getting them behind the mission, building a great narrative behind that uh, and conveying it to them in a very kind of strategic and effective way can really, really help you bring on the right talent. And again, as you scale up at different sizes, stages of the company, um, you're going to need different types of talent, right? Sometimes you're going to be 
uh, bricklayers um, in the early, early days where they can do many things and are very scrappy and work hard and are very results oriented and care about the work they do as it relates to the overall success of the business. And then in the latter stages of your kind of company as, as you mature, building folks who can execute against a game plan and are being more rigorous about the metrics and def- and and following a certain game plan and, and iterating based on kind of you know successes or failures. And I'm intrigued. How do you then uh, look to source these brilliant candidates? Is it a referral network of, of, of brilliant candidates? And, and do you look to kind of work with recruiters to ensure that a solid, good flow of candidates comes to you? Yeah, so um, we actually leverage both of those approaches here at Front. Um, and, and just even my past experiences, when you're very, very small and you don't have the luxury of a recruiting team um, or folks who can spend uh, any amount of time recruiting, you kind of have to do it yourself, right? And really, um, the onus is on everyone to kind of mine their networks. I saw that both of my past experiences and even here at Front, a lot of the companies you end up building, you end up hiring folks who are a first, second, or third degree in the network. And really being is that if you're hiring great people, they know about other uh, other great people. They say A players hire A players, right? Um, so the goal is keeping your bar very, very high where you know your early, early team are people who, who are doing very well and folks who you really respect their work product as well as their both of that uh, as well as them professionally and personally and generally working directly with them to sit down and look through their networks and ask them who are those five great people they've you worked with in your past regardless of what role who are those people were you really really impressed with in a professional environment and then even on a kind of a, a secondary basis personally, who do you think is really good? You've heard they're very good. Um, and setting levels to these things at Dropbox, for example, we had something called a level one referral. We had level one all the way through level five. Level one was someone I worked with professionally and someone I also know is good. I can confirm and v- verify that they're good. And level five would be, hey, this person just reached out to me on LinkedIn or reach out to me cold. Making sure that the rest of the team has a context on that person so the team can prioritize who should we interview or sign interview because you have very finite recruiting time and resources because you're also kind of have your core job. And if Eventually, when you hire a recruiter, having that person build great processes. If you don't have a recruiter, bring on an agency. There's many great agencies here in the valley and you know here and uh, across the world that are that specialize in different types of varying degrees of kind of uh, kind of stature in the in the peaking order. Right. So I think from looking for uh, entry level sales rep or SDR all the way through, I'm looking at to fill out the bench of management ranks. There are some great agencies already have great relationships, but you should really really leverage and mine the existing network before you go outbound and try to find. Uh, try to add capacity through agencies or recruiters that are contingency or, or retention based. And we're going to dive into a 60 seconds after now. So a quick fire round, uh, 60 seconds per answer. How does that sound? Sounds great. So I'm excited. You, you said about 18 players there. Uh, do you want a team full of 18 players? A guest recently said to me that you need some B team players in the team. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think the big thing is I always try to strive for, try to hire up, meaning I want to hire someone who could theoretically be my boss in a few years. Um, and that's and the, generally the reason I think that you should try to hire the best of the best is that you want to hire the folks who have a very high ceiling. The goal is when you bring people into the company, you know, they should be able to serve a great purpose or just kind of do the core role and do it very well based on the scope that you define and why the, the reason you hired them. Uh, but you're also, your goal is to have them go on to own different parts in the business, whether it's in your function, in your department, if that's sales, or what you find is being able to nurture and develop those folks so they can go on to do other things, but stay within the business and be able to reach their full potential. The other, there's other schools of thought where you could also hire folks who are less stellar because you want them to stay in the role and be very, very happy in the role. But I think that in my philosophy, it's always worked best where you hire people who kind of push the envelope for what's possible, especially in their role. And 
you know, I've seen this at Dropbox where a lot, many of those folks, uh, the folks who are passionate about doing sales, uh, stayed in sales and built a career in sales and done really well and are very respected. And the folks who are not as excited about the role they originally came into have moved on to uh, made lateral moves and then kind of move up in, in those functions based on their passion. But the whole reason you join a startup is to be able to, you know, have your hands in a lot of different things, not just your core, core role. And so when you bring in the best and brightest people, your mission should be to be able to kind of foster and develop them to the point where they can go on to add value in other areas in the business, if that's their passion. And then I, I want to know then your favorite SaaS material, be it book, blog, um, newsletter, what's your favorites? Yeah. So um, other than Saster, which is a, you know, a frequently uh, <laughs> frequent destination for well me. Done. on my Well done. Thank you very much. <laughs> right. Very diplomatic. Also, Both Sides of the Table by Mark Suster is a, a great blog and he has a great Snapstorm as well that you should check out on, on Snapchat. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then the biggest advice to early stage SaaS founders, you've worked with the many greats. What's the biggest advice? Yeah, I think the biggest advice is find your revenue business model early. Um, and if you're a founder, you should be on the phone talking to your early users and understanding not only how they heard about it, how heard about you, uh, but also understanding what kind of value they're hoping to get out of your product. You read a lot of uh, places where people talk about, you know, if you're a founder, you should also be selling. You should be really your first sales rep before you ever hire the second one. I think that that's definitely uh, a very, there, there's some validity to that. Um, so making sure you can build a repeatable sales process yourself before you ha- hire any outside sales folks. And then I want to know the biggest challenge for you in your role today now with Front, in the new role at Front, what's the biggest challenge for you? Yeah, uh, I think the biggest challenge is making sure we can keep uh, a great family-oriented culture here internally where everyone is excited about coming to work and it feels like you're, you're, you're spending a lot of time with friends, but also making sure that we balance that with bringing in more great talent and hiring as very as quickly as possible. We recently raised some money and a lot of that is going to go to headcount growth. Um, so the goal is hire other great folks who have been as great as the 16, 17 other people we've, we've brought on the team to date, but also balance that with you know, strong leadership and folks who, ha- who have, ha- have uh, leadership and success at other companies who can teach some of the less experienced folks, as well as make sure we're hiring some kind of up-and-coming superstars who can also help us uh, get, get us to a place where we can continue to get to that next phase in our, in our maturity cycle. And then final quick fire is productivity hacks and tactics. What are your must-dos to save time? Yeah, so... Um, you know, I think that there's a lot of great products out there, um, especially now that I'm in, in a more of a core sales role. You know, obviously we use our own product here to do inbox management. Um, I've listened to some past, some past podcasts, uh, for, for Saster. And I know a lot of people, they always lead with, you know, my email. I have to spend a few minutes or hours every single day just cleaning out my inbox and deleting stuff. I think that our product, as well as a number of other products like Gainsight and Tango and, you know, kind of using other great CRMs like we use Salesforce and we have a, a lot of sophistication built in our Salesforce where we can make sure we surface the right information for whether you're a sales rep or an SDR or leadership or management to make sure that you're focusing your activities in the right areas and kind of real prospects that will turn into real revenue. And then I want to finish today by taking kind of a more macro view and discussing the art of sales now. And it's often called an art of sales, but is it really more now a science with the increasing role of data in sales? Do you consider it more a science? And what are the kind of inherent nuances within sales? 
Yeah. So the way I look at it, I think it's twofold. I think it's both a, a scientific, you know, kind of profession where, you know, you're seeing more and more now, especially as there's more great kind of parts, uh, you know, very products in the middle of the stack where you can use them to be more scientific about your job, whether you're in customer success, it's Gainsight or Detango, whether you're in sales, um, it's things like Persist IQ or Zen Prospect or many other tools kind of um, automate things. Um, uh, when I look at the, the business, I think it depends on who you're really selling to in terms of the segment of the market. Um, if you're doing high velocity, high touch sales with, with a very transactional sales model, um, I think a lot of it is, you know, measuring, experimenting and, and, and measuring the numbers, um, over time. And you need to be very, very scientific, right? So if you're pushing, uh, you know, spending a lot of time talking to a hundred prospects, whereas, you know, these prospects X amount will be converting every single month into, um, essentially a trial. And then that percentage will essentially convert into a paid deal and monitoring that at a very, very tight cadence, meaning every single week on a rolling basis. You can learn a lot about your business to see, you know, what things are ever evolving in your business and, you know, where are you converting folks in the right areas versus what behavior is influencing factors to convert these people versus, um, you know, kind of more in the higher end of the market where you're selling to much larger companies. Um, I think that's where more of the art of sales comes into play. You know, you're building strong long-term rapport with folks. You're thinking with the mindset of an AE but having the mentality of a customer success person where you're trying to build long-term kind of brand value and rapport with this fo- these people because really with the decision maker, they always say people buy from the salesperson they like, maybe not necessarily the best product. Um, you need to make sure that you essentially build, you know, strong rapport. I think that's really an art where not every sales rep is created equal. Um, you have to be directly involved in uh, building rapport over time where, you know, the person knows you by name and understands that you care more about their business and their processes and uh, helping solve the inefficiencies versus um, less about trying to just kind of bring uh, a high, vol- high volume of deals through the door. Well, Kaylin, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show today, and I can't wish you more luck for your new role at Front. It really is, obviously, as you know, the most incredible company uh, and some very, very exciting times ahead. So I look very forward to seeing you blossom there. But thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Harry, thank you so much for having me on the uh, on the line today. It's been exciting, and it's, it, you've been asking some very provocative questions. I've been having to think a lot. And I'd like to say a huge thank you to Kalen for giving up his time today to come on the show. It's so fantastic to hear his journey and the exciting times that lie ahead for him and for Front. Again, if you enjoyed the episode with Kalen today and want to hear more from him, then you must head over to frontapp.com and check out their blog where you can find Mathilde's written interview with Kalen. Also, if you're loving all things from the world of Sasta, then check out sasta.com or follow at JasonLK or at HStebbings on Snapchat. Thank you so much, as always, for all your support and we look very forward to bringing you Friday's episode with Matt Garrett at Salesforce.